0: Water procurement is one of your most urgent needs in a survival situation. You can't live long without water, especially in hot areas where you lose water rapidly through perspiration. Even in cold areas, one needs a minimum of two liters of water each day to maintain efficiency. More than three-fourths of the human body is composed of fluids. The body loses fluids as a result of heat, cold, stress, and exertion. Uh, To function effectively, you must replace the fluids that your body loses. So one of your first goals is to obtain an adequate supply of water. Uh, Almost any environment that has water present to some degree uh, has water sources. Um, There's also the concern of whether or not the water is potable. That means can can one drink it. If you do not have a canteen or a cup or a can or some other type of container Uh, You can improvise one from plastic or from water-resistant cloth. You can use uh, cloth to soak the water up and uh, squeeze it into your mouth or into your hands. Um, You can shape plastic or cloth into a bowl by pleating it or use pins or other items uh, to hold the pleats together. Uh, In a frigid area a source of water is snow and ice. You would have to melt and purify that water. Uh, do not eat the snow or ice without melting it. Uh, eating snow and ice reduces the body temperature and it leads to more dehydration. And snow and ice are no purer than the water uh, that they are from, which is melt water usually. Sea ice that is gray in color or opaque is salty. You do not want to use sea ice if possible. Do not use it without desalting it. And sea ice that is crystalline with a bluish cast has less salt in it. It's still pretty salty. Any salt that you consume will increase your need for water. Uh, It takes more water to remove salt from the body, and that is a uh, can be a deadly combination of no water and high salinity in your in your water supply. Uh, at sea, if you're trying to collect water at sea, use a desalter kit. Do not drink seawater without desalting it. Uh, you can use rain water. You can catch rain in tarps or in other water holding material or containers. Uh, if a tarp or water holding material has inc- it's encrusted with salt, you can wash it in seawater before using it. Uh, very little salt will remain on it. Um, it does contaminate the water supply with salt if you can avoid doing that. Sometimes you can uh, dry it out and uh, pound it, either with your hand or with something like a paddle, and uh, Beat the salt crystals off of it uh, rather than rinse it and increase the salt crystallization in the material. The material holds the salt water inside and crystallizes the salt inside the material. Uh, the material tends to not dry then and uh, it can cause a water hazard problem. Uh, sea ice, um, again, if it's gray in color or opaque, it is salty. And if it's crystalline with a bluish cast, it has very little salt to it or less salt. In a beach environment, a good source of groundwater, a good source of water is groundwater. Uh, the means of obtaining potable groundwater is to um, move up the beach away from the surf edge uh, about two-thirds of the way up the beach and then dig a hole deep enough to allow the water to seep in. Uh, you get rocks off the shoreline or up past the uh, sand line, and uh, you can build a fire, uh, heat the rocks and drop the hot rocks into the water and then capture the steam and wring water out of the cloth. Uh, this produces very small amounts of water and it takes a long time Uh, to put that together, but it desalinates the water. Uh, if you dig it out of a, you dig a hole in the beach up off of the surf, usually that water is, um, drinkable. Uh, if you can desalinate it by, uh, turning it into steam and, and uh, re resourcing it back into water uh, that improves the salinity on it. An alternate method uh, is if you have a container or bark pot available, to fill the container or pot with seawater and then build a fire and boil water to produce steam. Uh, hold a cloth over the container to absorb the steam and wring water from the cloth, or you can. Uh, You can set up a piece of um, tarp, plastic tarp, uh, that will capture the steam, and the steam will run off of it in beads, and then you capture it in a second container if you happen to have those. Oftentimes you don't have any of these things, uh, and you just have to try to figure something out based on this advice. in a desert uh, the source of water is groundwater it's in valleys and low areas and at the foot of concave banks of dry riverbeds uh, it's at the foot of cliffs or rock outcrops uh, at the first depression behind dry uh, behind a first sand dune or dry desert lake and uh, wherever you find damp surfaces of sand and wherever you find green de- vegetation it takes a while to um, to figure out where underground water is uh, in a desert, it's one of the most difficult areas to get uh, potable water from, just because it's difficult to find. It does have water; it does have underground water sources. Uh, they're difficult to find, and uh, the people in the areas mostly just memorize where those water sources are and go from water source to water source. So, without that, without knowing where those are. Uh, it becomes difficult to locate usable water your best option for water in a in a desert um, if you don't have a lot of uh, green growth that you can use and you don't have any known water sources is that large temperature drop between the heat of the day and the cold at night and then the rise in the morning from the cold of the night into the heat of the day you can use that for evaporation. Uh, there's a fairly good um, evaporation uh, equation there that produces, um, you know, enough enough water that you can uh, get by on it. It's you know it's not really enough for normal usage, but uh, for for extreme circumstances um, it it can produce a fairly good amount of water. Uh, You can dig holes deep enough to allow water to seep in. Uh, If you can find an area that's got a nearby water source that isn't potable you can see that there's growth, plant growth there that indicates that there's underground water or there's some kind of stagnant surface water. Uh, You can dig a hole just like on the beach uh, aways from the original source of water and, um, and drink the seepage into that. It's dirty, it's filled with dirt, but it tastes okay. It tastes like dirt and, uh, and the water is clean enough. Uh, in a sand dune belt any available water will be found beneath the original valley uh, on the floor at the edge of the dunes. So this sounds very easy but it's uh, difficult to locate where the edge of the dunes are And uh, where the original valley floor is, you often aren't anywhere near the original valley floor. Uh, For cacti, you can cut off the top of a barrel cactus and mash or squeeze the pulp. Um, There's uh, several different kinds of cacti that you can use. Um, The saguaro is well known. Uh, It actually keeps a potable water source inside. Uh, It's like a little pool of water. Uh, this is used by a lot of animals. Um, it is kind of difficult to get to it a little bit. But uh, the agave and the saguaro both produce, uh, they both have water. Um, the saguaro, you have to dig into the core of it. And the agave, it's in the center. The agave is the one you see the most often. The saguaro are the tall ones uh that are most often associated with the southwest deserts, uh, with the uh, arms that stick up in the air. And the the agave is uh, the uh, prickly um, uh, sort of uh, bush-shaped cacti um, with the long sword um, extensions uh, from a center point uh in those the center area is the area that has the potable water in it it's not very much but it can be used and in the barrel cactus also the barrel cactus looks like a barrel and uh you can uh, it's most uh, most of the cacti are um they have edible parts to them if you can skin the outside or break leaves off and um and break open or have the uh, the outside leaf, which is, you know, very tough and and uh, impenetrable. Inside, there is um, uh, damp and edible, um, moisture laden. Uh, sort of a pulp uh it doesn't taste very good some of it's very bitter but um, it can rehydrate you at least enough to get to to keep going uh do not eat the pulp um, just take the juice out and discard the pulp for the barrel cactus um, this is good advice on all of it it is uh you can eat it um, if you if you cook it if you eat it raw it can give you stomach cramps and uh and cause, um, you know, stomach uh, maladies. Um, there's also the aloe plant. Uh, the aloe plant is good for, it's got, for aloe vera, um, it's got aloe juice in it that can be used for sunburns, which you will probably have. And it, uh, it's, the aloe juice is also, you can eat the aloe juice or drink it it's not very refreshing but it it is caloric and it it is a survival um, liquid that you can ingest. Uh, Without a machete cutting into a cactus is difficult and it takes time since you must get past uh, those long strong spines uh, of the cacti and cut through the tough rind but sometimes you gotta do it you can kick them apart sometimes or you can use uh, sharp stones Uh, depressions or holes in rocks are also a source of water. Uh, there's uh, every so often um, uh, the sudden um, during monsoon season, uh, you can use those depressions or holes in rocks, or you can build a small area to contain some water in it and use that to to capture water to drink. Uh, periodic rainfall makes collecting in pools and seepage into fissures or collecting in holes in rocks possible. And uh, fissures in rocks, these sometimes hold water for a while. Uh, really only after uh, after the rain it, it does dry up very quickly. You could insert flexible tubing if you have that and siphon water. If the fissure is large enough you can lower a container into it. Uh, you can get down into uh, a wadi floor or um, an arroyo. And if you can find an area where the sand is or the the um, the floor is damp or there's green growth around or it looks like there might be water there. Sometimes you can smell it. Oftentimes if it's uh, if you've you know, if it's a, um, a strong enough water area, you can smell the water. Uh, you can dig into the bottom of the wadi or dig into the bottom of the arroyo. And uh, you just keep digging until water starts to pool up in the bottom. Uh, the, the dirt is cool and wet. And as you go deeper down, it, uh, it does start to pool because of the heat, the external heat, into the bottom and you can get some water that way. Uh, For porous rock, you can insert flexible tubing and siphon water. Uh, Sometimes you can come up with some other options. Uh, Often you don't have flexible tubing with you. Um, And you just have to sort of look around. Sometimes you can use reeds if those are available. And uh, sometimes you can roll things up and use those as a straw. Uh, for condensation on metal, uh, this is another way to gather water uh, by using um, propped co- uh, metal to collect condensation. Uh, for temperature change, the temperature change is, is very drastic, and it does, produce, uh, it does produce dampness. And if the dampness has something to adhere to, and you have something to collect it in, a tarp, uh, any kind of a container, Um, you can, um, produce, lay out a surface and, uh, camp the surface so that it, um, so that the collected dew that falls in a desert environment between the very cold nights and the very hot days, um, you can collect uh, some water from that and it's uh, it's good drinkable water uh, extreme temperature variations between night and day uh, cause that condensation on metal surfaces you can use a you can use a tarp uh, you can use clear plastic uh, you can use any anything that's uh, um, that cools off quickly uh, that you might have with you, tape and that kind of thing uh, There are signs to watch for in a desert to help you find water. All trails will lead to water most animals. uh, They know where the local water sources are, and they go there. Uh, You don't want to go too far out of your way to follow trails because they can dead end into, you know, various areas that don't have anything to do with water. Uh, You should follow in the direction in which the trails converge, and then the signs of camps and campfire ashes and animal droppings and trampled terrain also mark uh, trails and water sources. Flocks of birds will circle circle over water holes in certain areas, and uh, some birds fly to water holes at dawn and at sunset. Uh, their flight at the times are generally fast and they're very close to the ground. Uh, so you want to look for bird tracks or listen for chirping sounds in the evening or the morning uh, that sometimes indicates that water's nearby. Uh, the most reliable indication, obviously, is. Uh, plant and growth. Uh, Any trees usually indicate water and uh, any uh, uh, ground growth. Green ground growth especially indicates that there's uh, water close to the surface and any growth that you can see uh, indicates some water available. Uh, Cacti put down a very long root that goes uh, quite some distance into the ground. So uh, you can't necessarily dig around cacti and get water. It's not considered um, a reliable growth indicator. But anything that has leaves, deciduous type leaves on it, indicates uh, some water source underneath it. Uh, If you do not have a reliable source of water to replenish your water supply, uh, keep alert for ways to you know to access your environment and and uh, use your environment to help you replace your water supply Uh, heavy dew can provide water and rags or tufts of fine grass around ankles uh, as you walk through um, the dew covered grass before sunrise you can use that Uh, you can rake at it with um, if you have uh, uh, some sturdy piece of really anything cardboard uh, wrapped in a piece of poncho or a piece of metal that you might have or the backboard uh, from your pack or whatever it is that you have Um, you can even run your hands through it slowly and get some water that way uh, that helps helps alleviate um, dehydration. Uh, as rags or grass tufts absorb the dew, you wring the water into a container. You can repeat the process until you have a supply of water or until the dew is gone. Uh, the Australian aboriginals mop up as much as a liter an hour that way. And you can also uh, you can eat the grass, you can chew the grass. Uh, bees or ants going into a hole in a tree may point to a water-filled hole. You can siphon the water with plastic tubing or scoop it up with an improvised dipper. You can also also stuff cloth into the hole to absorb the water and then wring it out from the cloth. Uh, The water sometimes gathers in tree crotches or rock crevices. Uh, You can use the above procedures um, previously stated like uh, uh, wringing it out, uh, siphoning it out, uh, using a straw. Uh, dipping it out. Uh, Sometimes the only thing you can do is just put your hand in and you get a little bit on your hand and you just keep going until you've got as much of the water out as you can. Uh, In arid areas, uh, bird droppings around a crack in the rocks may indicate water in or near that crack. Uh, Green bamboo thickets are also an excellent source of water. Fresh water, they, they are drawn to water and they maintain the water source. Uh, the green from the green bamboo is clear or the water from the uh, from the green bamboo is clear and odorless and uh, you can eat the bamboo leaves. Uh, to get water uh, you bend a bamboo stalk over and forward and cut the tip off uh, tie it down and cut off the top and uh, the water drips freely during the night. Uh, it just runs up the stalk of the the bamboo and out the top and old cracked bamboo may contain water. It's also a good, um, uh, lightweight, uh, carrying, a, a you know, a container that you can carry. Uh, bamboo is very tough. It's very difficult to cut. So while this sounds easy, uh, you still have to cut through it. So that requires usually a machete and a, a lot of work that takes a lot of energy and that reduces your, your uh, hydration level also and adds to your dehydration so you have to sort of evaluate whether or not the effort it takes to get the water from the site is worth the um, expenditure of energy and calories and uh, your hydration level um, do not drink alcoholic beverages those dehydrate the body and cloud your judgment uh, do not drink urine this contains um, Urine contains harmful body waste. It's about two percent salt. Uh, if you absolutely have to drink urine, uh, you can um, you can use a condensation method that will reduce the uh, uric acid in the in the urine. And it's uh, it's not good for you. But if you absolutely have to, there have been times when that's really oh that's all there is. Uh, there was a recent story about a woman who, uh, was in a, um, uh, they had a, a boat accident at sea and they were left floating on wreckage and she had an infant with her and she drank her own urine to, uh, continue nursing the infant and died of it. So, it it can be done, and the infant did survive. Uh, do not drink blood. It's salty. It's considered a food, uh, and it requires additional body fluids to digest. It actually takes quite a bit of uh, digestive energy to digest blood, uh, and it may transmit disease. You don't want to drink animal blood, um, or your own blood unless you you know you really absolutely have to. Uh, Seawater is about 4% salt, and it takes uh, 2 liters of body fluids to rid the human body of waste from 1 liter of salt water. So by drinking salt water, you deplete your body's water supply, and it uh, increases death, the chance of death, dramatically. Uh, Wherever you find banana or plantain trees, you can get water. Uh, This is mostly in a jungle environment. Uh, clearly, the bamboo stalks and a banana or plantain—that's jungle. Although you can find them in some oasis areas, uh, you cut down the tree, leaving about a 30-centimeter stump, and then you can scoop out the center of the stump so that the hollow is bowl-shaped, and water from the roots will emin- uh, immediately begin collecting in the hollow. Uh, the first three uh, bowl fillings of water bitter. But uh, after that, it's palatable. And uh, the stump supplies water for about four days. Uh, you have to be sure to cover it up to keep out the insects. that are attracted to that immediately. They also are looking for water. You have to remember that when you're looking for water or food, uh, all of the animals in the area also are. Everything out there is also looking for food and water. Uh, some tropical vines can give you water. You can cut a notch in the vine as high as you can reach and then cut the vine off close to the ground and catch uh, the liquid um, in a container, out of the end of the vine, or or in your mouth. Uh, don't put the vine in your mouth. Just hold it over your mouth and uh, let it drip in. And do not drink the liquid if it's sticky, milky, or bitter tasting. Uh, the milk from green unripe coconuts is a good. It's good for uh, rehydration and it's a good thirst quencher. Uh, The milk from the mature coconuts contains a a coconut oil that acts as a laxative. So you want to drink in in, uh, careful moderation. Any laxative is obviously going to dehydrate you further, uh, and it's going to make moving difficult. Uh, In the American tropics, you can find uh, large trees with branches that support air plants, and the air plants hold a considerable amount of water uh, in their root nest they hold rainwater and they're overlapping leaves and they they make sort of a a nest of uh, roots and leaves uh, that kind of overlap together in a thick a thick mat and they hold uh, quite a bit of water in there because they don't have any earth uh, for their roots to sit in so they uh, they rely on collected rainwater uh, you can strain the water through a cloth to remove insects and debris or you can just drink the insects uh, sometimes that's a little bit dangerous but um, sometimes it's easier than trying to strain the water uh, and you know you digest insects as a as a protein uh, you can get water from plants with moist pulpy centers uh, that includes um, cacti. Uh, you can cut off a section of the plant and squeeze or smash the pulp so that the moisture runs out and then catch the liquid in a container or squeeze it over your mouth or collect it in your hands or just uh, just suck the pulp until it you've got some of the liquid out of it. Plant roots uh, provide water. You can dig or pry roots out of the ground and cut them into short pieces and then smash the pulp uh, so moisture runs out. Um, you want to try to smash it in a concave uh, rock and you know mortar and pestle set if you can find some concave piece of rock so that you can collect the moisture and it doesn't run down the side of the rock uh, you catch the liquid in a container or you just uh, you just have to uh, drink it straight out of the the cup of the stone uh, fleshy leaves stems or stalks such as bamboo contain water and you can cut notches in the stalks at the base of a joint to drain out the liquid. Uh, the following tr- trees, um, the following trees produce water. Uh, they provide water in some form. Palms, palm trees, uh, the burry, coconut, sugar, rattan, and nipa, those all contain liquid. Uh, you can bruise a lower f- uh, frond of the palm and pull it down to so the tree bleeds at the injury and then use, use that, uh, that runoff to, to drink. The Traveler's Tree, this is found in Madagascar. It's a tree with a cup-like sheath at the base of its leaves in which the water collects. Uh, the Umbrella Tree, this is all uh, mostly in the jungle uh, environment. The Umbrella Tree, the leaf base and root of the tree of western tropical Africa can provide water. And the baobab tree, uh, this uh, it's a giant tree of the Sandy Plains in northern Australia and Africa, and it collects water in a bottle-like trunk during the wet season. Uh, frequently, you can find clear, fresh water in those trees after weeks of dry weather in the location. Uh, do not keep the sap from plants longer than 24 hours. And it begins to ferment and becomes a, a dangerous water source or liquid source. Uh, you can build stills in various areas. Uh, These draw moisture from the ground or from plant material. You need certain materials to build a still and uh, you need time to let it collect water. It takes about 24 hours to get 0.5 to 1 liter of water. Uh, This is always you gotta kind of evaluate whether or not you want to stay in one place and try to collect water if you want to keep moving. Uh, Sometimes you don't have the option to stop and collect water. Uh, Sometimes you just have to keep going uh I'm um, an above ground still you can make an above ground still with a sunny slope um you place a clear plastic bag uh green leafy vegetation and a small rock uh in a sunny area with a a slight slope to it you fill the bag with air by turning and opening the bag into the breeze or scooping air into the bag and then you fill the plastic bag half to 3 Forceful of green leafy vegetation, and uh, be sure to remove all sticks or spines that might puncture the bag. Uh, It has to, it has to remain um, sealed so that there's no uh, air escaping it. Uh, Be careful not to use poisonous vegetation because that will produce a poisonous liquid. Uh, Then you want to place a small rock or similar item in the bag. Uh, This forms the bag in a uh, downward direction so that the liquid that that uh, is created by the evaporation of the um, the plants co2 um, release inside the bag under sunlight creating moisture on the inside of the bag you know the moisture the the stone forms the bag into sort of a cone shape at the bottom to encourage that liquid to collect in the bottom of the bag in a pool rather than remaining in droplets along the outside, inside edges of the bag, inside edges and perimeter of the bag. Uh, close the bag and tie the mouth securely as close to the end of the bag as possible uh, to keep the maximum amount of air space in the bag. Uh, you want to have some air space between the Between the vegetation and the surface of the bag. Uh, If you have a piece of tubing or a small straw or a hollow reed, you can insert one end of the mouth, one end of that into the mouth of the bag. uh, Before you tie it securely, and then tie it off and plug the tubing up so the air doesn't escape, and the tube will allow you to drain out the condensed water without untying the bag. Uh, You place the bag mouth downhill on a slope in full sunlight and position the mouth of the bag slightly higher than the low point in the bag. That's where the stone is. Uh, The low point is the stone. You settle the bag in place so that the rock works itself into the low point in the bag. Uh, Then to get the condensed water from the still you loosen the tie around the bag's mouth and tip the bag so that the water collected around the rock drains out. And then retie the mouth securely and reposition the still to allow further condensation. Uh, You can change the vegetation in the bag after extracting most of the water from it and that ensures the maximum amount of water output. Uh, This requires direct sunlight and a slope facing into that sunlight. Uh, A below ground still. You can make a below ground still. Uh, You need a digging tool. That can be anything. It can be a sharp rock. It can be a stick. It can be whatever you've got. It doesn't necessarily need to be anything official. Uh, A container, a clear plastic sheet, and a Drinking tube and a rock. You don't necessarily need the drinking tube. Uh, You can select a site where you believe the soil contains moisture, like a dry stream bed or a low spot where rainwater is collected, and the soil at the site should be easy to dig in. Uh, The sunlight has to hit the site most of the day. Uh, To construct the, the still below ground, you dig a bowl shaped hole about one meter across and 60 centimeters deep, and then you dig a sump in the center of the hole. Uh, The sump's depth and perimeter will depend on the size of the container that you have to place it in. So you're going to put a container in it. You want to build your sump about the same size as the container, so you can slide the container in and out. The bottom of the sump should allow the container to stand upright. And then you anchor the tubing to the container's bottom by forming a loose overhand knot in the tubing. You don't have to use tubing. Uh, You can just uh, pull the container out. Uh, and really you can build a sump and, and line it with leaves and, uh, you can do this, um, this procedure and then, uh, take it apart and drink straight out of the sump area and then, uh, replace, uh, the rest of the construct around it and continue, um, collecting water. Uh, You want to place the container upright in the sump. You might have some green foliage lining the inside of the hole or uh, damp dirt. Uh, You extend the unanchored end of the tubing up over and beyond the lip of the hole. Uh, And then you place a plastic sheet, a plastic sheet or anything that you have Uh, You can put your poncho over it. You can put plastic over it. You can put plastic tarping over it. You can put uh, canvas tarping over it. Uh, Canvas doesn't work as well, but you can still get something from it. Um, Covering the edge uh, of the hole with soil, or pulling the, the cover, the plastic sheet, out over the edge and then and then anchoring it around the edge of the hole with soil to hold it in place. Place a rock in the center of the plastic sheet. So you've got the ground, and then you've got a hole dug in the ground. And then at the center of that hole, you have a, a sump hole. You might have a container in there of some kind. Um, and then you uh, lay a, um, a some plastic sheeting of some kind over the top of the hole to all of the edges of the hole and you secure it with stones or dirt around the edges and then you put a rock in the center of the plastic sheet so that it dips down towards the sump. You lower the plastic sheet into the hole until it's about 40 centimeters below the ground level and it now forms an inverted cone uh, with the rock at its apex. So then you make sure that the cone's apex is directly over your container And then you make sure that the plastic cone does not touch the sides of the hole because the the earth then absorbs the condensed water. You want the condensed water to form on the underside of the plastic and run off in droplets uh, down to the end of the cone and drop into the sump hole. You put more soil on the edge of the plastic to hold it securely in place and to prevent the loss of moisture. You can use stones or uh, pieces of stick or log, whatever you can whatever you can get together. Uh, you uh, plug the tube when it's not in use so that the moisture doesn't evaporate if you have a tube. and then you can drink the water without disturbing the still by using the tubing. Otherwise you have to take the still apart and drink the water and then reconstruct the still around it. Uh, you may want to use plants in the hole as a moisture source the same way as you did with the plastic bag. Uh, you would line the inside of the hole, Uh, You need to dig out some additional soil from the sides of the hole to form a slope. uh, And then you place the plants on that slope inside the hole underneath the plastic. And then you um, set it up the same way. Uh, If polluted water is your only water source, you can dig a small trough outside the hole about 25 centimeters from the still's lip. And then dig through the trough about 25 centimeters deep and 8 centimeters wide. Uh, and then pour the polluted water in the trough and make sure you don't spill any of the polluted water around the rim of the hole where the plastic sheet touches the soil. Uh, the trough holds the polluted water and the soil filters it uh, as it still draws it. So the water then condenses on the plastic and drains into the container. The process works well if your only water source is salt water. You can use that to desalinate your water Uh it's still salty, but you can drink it, and uh, and it still is. It it's more usable for you. Uh, you need at least three stills to meet an individual daily water intake need. Um, most people don't build three stills, but. Uh, you know you do what you can do. Uh, the water purification um, is not always possible to do. Rainwater collected in clean containers or in plants is usually safe for drinking, but you should probably purify water from lakes, ponds, swamps, springs, or streams, especially the water near human settlements or in the tropics. Uh, water in the tropics tends to stagnate, and uh, it has a lot A lot of insects use it to lay eggs in. Uh, it is Generally, if it's on the surface, it's uh, uh, ground surface water. It has contamination in it, and you run the risk of uh, some of the tropical diseases. Uh, You have shots against uh, the major tropical diseases, but there's a lot of minor tropical diseases that are a concern with drinking um, open ground water in the tropics. That's a jungle setting. When possible, you purify all water uh, that you've got from vegetation or from the ground by using iodine or chlorine or by boiling. This is, uh, you know, you, sometimes you can do this, uh, most of the time you can't, but you have to use your best judgment at the time. You can purify water by using purification tablets or placing 5 drops of 2% tincture of iodine in a canteen full of clear water, and if the canteen is full of cloudy or cold water, use 10 drops. And then you let the canteen of water stand for 30 minutes before drinking it. Or you can boil water for one minute at sea level, adding one minute for each additional 300 meters above sea level. Or boil for 10 minutes no matter where you are. If you boil water, you lose some of the water. So if you have to boil water to purify it, uh, you want to try to do the um, still process where you put something over the boiling water to capture the condensation off of it so that you can, that's all drinkable water and you don't want to lose that water in the atmosphere. Uh, if you can do that, um, it's a good idea to try to collect the water that you're losing. Uh, by drinking non-potable water, you can contract diseases or swallow organisms that can harm you. Such diseases or organisms are dysentery. Uh, that's a severe prolonged diarrhea with a bloody stool, fever, and weakness or cholera and typhoid, uh, you're susceptible to the diseases regardless of inoculations. Um, those wear out over time. So even though you've had shots, it's likely you can get it if you are ingesting uh, directly contaminated water. Uh, flukes is another illness. A Stagnant, polluted water in tropical areas often contains blood flukes. And if you swallow flukes, Uh, They bore into the bloodstream and live as parasites and cause disease. And leeches, everybody's favorite. If you swallow a leech, it can hook into the human throat passage or inside the nose and will suck blood and create a wound and uh, then move to another area, and each bleeding wound becomes infected. Absolutely awful. So you want to be real careful about the water that you're drinking in areas where leeches are, are, uh, are residing. Uh, water filtration devices um, are not easy to construct in the wilderness, but if you have water that you uh, would like to use, it's muddy and stagnant and foul-smelling. You can clear the water uh, by placing it in a container, placing it in a container, and letting it stand for twelve hours, and then carefully pouring off the top two-thirds of it, leaving the contaminant at the bottom. The uh, the heavier contaminant sinks to the bottom third or quarter of the container. <clears throat> and the top of the container is clean water, or you can use a, a straw or drinking device and drink the top out of the container, uh, which is uh, potable water. Or you can clear it by pouring it through a filtering system. Um, these can only be used to clear the water and make it more palatable. You still have to purify it with, uh, with the a uh, tincture or uh, your purification tablets. Uh, to make a filtering system, you can place several centimeters or layers of filtering material, like a sand or crushed rock or charcoal or cloth, in bamboo or in. Uh, you can um, hollow a log or use an article of clothing, and then uh, you filter the you filter the water through successive layers. So you might build a tripod and you tie uh, three pieces of cloth to the tripod at three levels and then you pour the water into the top level and it drips into the bottom the second level and then down into the third level and then you collect it at the bottom underneath the third uh, piece of cloth or you can uh, use a container uh, and you can stack it like you're gonna plant something in it where you have a, a level of stone And then you have a level of sand or or loose, um, um, dry dirt or uh, a siphoning um, earth material, and then another layer of stones and a layer of siphoning earth material, and then another layer of stones. And then you pour the water on the top layer of stones and it seeps down through uh, what's basically a natural earth filtration um, layering, and then you collect the water out of the bottom of the container. Uh, this is very elaborate construction uh, for when you're, you know, you're in an emergency situation. Uh, it, you oftentimes don't really have the possibility of doing this, but if you can do it, then you at least you have some idea of some things that you can do to purify the water. If you don't have purification tablets, uh, you can use bleach. If you have bleach, uh, it's a couple drops for uh, uh, one liter or a gallon. Um, If you don't have that, you can do the uh, condensation process or uh, any kind of filtration process where you put it into a piece of cloth and filtrate it uh, filter it through the cloth into a second piece of cloth. The more pieces of cloth it goes through the cleaner it is. So if you only have one uh, that takes at least the top layer out. But you have to wait a long time for that. Uh, you want to put a stone in the middle of it uh, to help it uh, f- um, filter through in a conical direction down towards either your collection device a uh, cup or canteen or whatever it is you have or into the next layer of cloth. And uh, you have to wait a long time for this. And sometimes it's not possible to wait a long time. You're, you're too dehydrated and you need to drink water sooner than it takes to uh, to wait for that filtration process, which sometimes can be 24 hours. So in summation on this, um, we've covered a number of different environments. Uh, For a desert environment, your best option for collecting water in a desert environment is to use the natural condensation that forms between the heat of the day and the cold of the night, and between the cold of the night and the rising heat of the morning. So uh, the heat in the morning comes up very quickly, and uh, you can use that time and you, the, one of the best times is at night as the heat falls off into the cold of the night. It's very, very cold. Sometimes you can't sleep. You might as well sit up and collect water. Um, you can also use cacti. Uh, if you can't actually get water or liquid out of the cacti, you can use the interior of the um, sword-like leaves of the, the long sword-like leaves. Um, extensions on the cacti to uh, you break those in half and you can eat the insides uh, don't swallow them just use them to uh, put them in your mouth and take the liquid out of them uh, for jungle environment you you have a lot of water available. There's a lot of standing water and a lot of groundwater. Uh, most of it's contaminated, uh, so you have to spend more time decontaminating your water, either by filtering it or by using uh, decam- uh, decontamination, you know, water purification uh, pills or water purification droplets, whatever, whatever you have. Uh, for water purification, if you have that in your, on your person, uh, otherwise you have to use filtration to clear the water of insect um, eggs and other contaminants that uh, can, um, you know, they'll kill you. I mean, it's it doesn't just slow you down. Uh, dysentery can kill you in a very short period of time. Um, and in a Arctic environment, uh, you basically, you have ice and snow. You can melt these down. Uh, you have to find firewood and start a fire with wood that may be wet or, um, in altitudes where fire doesn't burn very well. And, uh, so this is a, it's more of a concern than it seems to be. And if you uh, have to use seawater, either frozen seawater in the form of sea ice or uh, liquid seawater, uh, you've, f- you've got to do some kind of desalination process. Um, and that can be very difficult to put together if you're floating on a raft or if you're uh, on a piece of wreckage or you're on an island that doesn't have any kind of a potable water source. Uh, you can also use things uh, for in a, a jungle setting, um, and in a um, desert setting. Uh, you can use the leaves of cacti to as your condensate surface. They do they do collect water in that temperature change between the day and the night, and between the the night and the early morning. Uh, and you can use. Uh, palm leaves or other jungle um, foliage. Uh, they collect a lot of um, a lot of running liquid droplets uh, because it's a jungle environment. there's high humidity. Uh, if you can get some kind of a surface uh, to include a leaf surface, you can collect water that way and it keep going. It's not a lot of water at one time, but it is enough to keep you going across a distance. Uh, So the desert cacti that you would want to use are agave, saguaro, and aloe. And, uh, In a jungle environment, you can make straws with leaves rolled up, or you can use reeds. Uh, You can use soaking and squeezing to collect water. One of the most frustrating things is to have a water source and not be able to get to the water. It's in a deep crevice. Uh, It's in the bowl of a tree. Uh, it's It's out of reach. You can't get your mouth to it, and you can't get your hand cupped in to lift it to your mouth. And you don't have anything with you to reach in and, you know, and bring the water out. It's visible, but you can't get to it. So uh, if you have time, you know, in your daily life, you kind of want to look around and note things that you might use if you were ever in an emergency situation uh, to get water out of some place that you can't really reach uh, and you don't have access to, you can't get into it. I'm going to conclude this section with a short discussion about sandstorms or dust storms. Uh, sandstorms occur in uh, sand deserts, and dust storms in dust deserts. Uh, in Iraq, uh, the dust was, or the the surface was, um, you know, it's more of a, a fine dust or talcum dirt, uh, and it uh, forms a dust storm. They're called haboobs. Uh, you can look up sandstorm or dust storm and you can see what one looks like and then imagine uh, being in that with nothing to protect you. Uh, You don't have a vehicle, you don't have a camel, you don't have a tent, you don't have anything to uh, cover up with, you're just wearing your uniform. So what can you do to uh, reduce uh, the possibility of being smothered? Um, Is You want to create an air pocket uh, so you want to put your back to the wind. So the direction it's coming in from is the direction the wind is pointing. So you want to put your back to that. You can pull your BDU uh, jacket up over your head. Do not take your BDU jacket off. You want to keep all of your body covered with some material because it's like a rock polisher. It'll just, um, it'll braid abrade your skin. Uh, so you need to keep all of your all of your body parts covered but you can pull your BDU jacket up over your head and create a little tent space put your head down between your knees and pull your BDU jacket up over your knees and put your head down between your knees and then you have a then you have an airspace um, you can also uh, build a, a shallow um, dig dugout area um, a shallow depression in the ground and create sort of a tent space with that. Uh, you can put your arms over your head, whatever you need to do to create a, a an air pocket that's going to last you for an hour or longer. Um, and uh, mirages, uh, just stay stay on your compass azimuth don't be led astray by mirages. Uh, they're very tempting. They look like it's a, it's a gas station or something like that that you want to go to, but you're not going to get to it, so stay on your course. Next, going to cover firecraft, everybody's favorite. On many survival situations, uh, the ability to start a fire can make the difference between living and dying, so fire can fulfill many needs. Uh, It's warmth and comfort, and it cooks and preserves food. It also provides warmth in the form of heated food uh, that saves calories that the body normally uses to produce body heat. Uh, You can use fire to purify water, sterilize bandages, signal for rescue, and uh, provide protection from animals, and uh, just to feel a lot better. Uh, It's a psychological boost by providing peace of mind and companionship. And uh, you can also use it to produce tools and weapons. Uh, It can cause problems as well. Uh, It's easily detected by the enemy. Uh, The smoke and light is easily visible at a distance. It's difficult to hide those things. Uh, It causes forest fires and destroys essential equipment. It also causes burns and uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, when it's used in shelters, so you have to be careful about uh, providing enough oxygen for your fire. Uh, remember that you will need to weigh your need for fire against your need to avoid enemy detection and really your uh, need for speed of movement. Uh, do you really need a fire? Um, you know, it's uh, a fire takes time to put together and uh, it takes time to um, to end a fire, uh, do you have water to end it? Uh, are you just going to leave it? Uh, are you going to break it apart and hope for the best? Are you going to be there long enough? Um, you know, to make a fire, do you really need? Do you need to spend the time and energy collecting the items to make one, and and putting the concern into making it? Can you afford to part with your five precious matches? Uh, you know, is is there a heavy wind that's going to make it difficult to start a fire? You only have one match, or you only have a few matches. Do you really want to risk it? Uh, and so on. You have to kind of weigh what your circumstances are based on, you know, your environmental concerns at the time and whether or not a fire is in your best interest. Uh, you shouldn't really make it just for psychological uh, comfort that it does provide. Um you really should just use it only when you absolutely have to, uh, to maximize your travel time and minimize, uh, your, um, being slowed down by and, uh, perhaps, um, Uh, lulled into complacency by the building of a daily fire. Uh, Basic fire principles uh, to build a fire uh, helps to understand the basic principles of a fire. Fuel in a non-gaseous state does not burn directly when you apply heat to a fuel that produces a gas and this gas combined with oxygen in the air burns. Uh, That's combustion. So understand the concept of fire in the fire triangle is very important to correctly constructing and maintaining a fire. The three sides of a triangle represent air, heat, and fuel, and if you remove any of the sides, the fire goes out. So the correct ratio of the components is very important for the fire to burn at its greatest capability, and the only way to learn the ratio is to practice it. Uh, You have to decide what your site and arrangement, what, what your site is going to be, and what your your arrangement uh, for your fire, uh, area, your fire pit is going to be before building a fire, consider the area, terrain and climate in which you're operating. Uh, consider the tools and materials that are available. Consider the time, how much time do you have and consider the need? Why do you need a fire? Uh, consider security. How close is the enemy and how visible is the fire? How, how, uh, how much will the smoke travel? Is it windy? Is it still? Uh, look for a dry spot that is protected from the wind uh, and for a spot that's suitably placed in relation to your shelter if you have one, uh, and a spot that will con- concentrate the heat in the direction that you require it to go in, and a spot that has a supply of wood or other fuel available. Uh, If you're in a wooded or brush-covered area, you clear the brush and scrape the surface of soil from the spot you've selected and clear a circle at least one meter in diameter so that there's little chance of the fire spreading. Uh, If time allows, you construct a fire wall using logs or rocks. Uh, The wall will help to reflect or direct the heat where you want it. Uh, It will also help reduce flying sparks and cut down the amount of wind that's blowing into the fire. Uh, but you will need enough wind to keep the fire burning. Uh, you can build a little lean-to, or you can build uh, a, a um, stacked log wall behind your fire, and this this creates like a little lee uh, in the weather area that you're in. It's kind of like a little mini shelter that doesn't have a roof um, that uh, captures the heat and holds it in a pocket. Uh, it cuts the wind, and then the heat builds up on one side of the wall, and you're, you know, you're in a warmer, uh, more comfortable position. Even if you don't have, you don't have any of your items with you. You don't have a sleeping bag. You don't have any. You don't have anything to keep warm with. You can lay down on the ground. The ground warms up, and you're next to a fire that has a, a wind block and a and a heat containment area, uh, behind you. Uh, In some situations, uh, you may find that an underground fireplace will be best to meet your needs and it conceals the fire uh, and serves well for cooking food. Uh, Do not use wet or porous rocks when you're building your fire pit as they can explode when they're heated. Uh, To make an underground fireplace or to coat a fire hole, uh, you dig a hole in the ground. uh, On the upwind side of the hole, poke or dig a large connecting hole for ventilation and then you build your fire in the hole. Uh, You lay your um, tender, your lay your wood in a across each other in a stacked formation with your tender on top. Uh, If you're in a snow covered area, you want to use green logs to make a dry base for your fire. Uh, trees with wrist-sized trunks are, are easily broken in extreme cold. So you cut or break several green logs and lay them side-by-side side on top of the snow. And then you add one or two layers and then lay the top layer of logs opposite to those below it. Uh, and then you can build your fire hole under that. Uh, you need three types of material uh, to build a fire. You need tinder, kindling, and fuel. So tinder is a dry material that ignites with little heat. That's, that's uh, you know, it's uh, similar to paper. Uh, a spark starts a fire, so the tinder must be absolutely dry to be sure. Just a spark will ignite it. If you have only a device that generates sparks, uh, charred cloth is almost essential. It holds a spark for long periods of time and allows you to put tinder uh, on the hot area to generate a small flame and you can make a charred cloth by heating cotton cloth until it turns black but does not burn. Uh, when you burn um, when you burn strings off of your uniform this is basically what you're doing but with a larger piece of cloth. Uh, once it's black you must keep it in an airtight container to keep it dry and then you prepare this cloth in advance of any uh, situation you might Encounter and then add it to your survival kit if you have one uh, Kindling is a readily combustible material that you can add to the burning tender and again This material should be absolutely dry to ensure rapid burning uh, Kindling increases the fire's temperature so that it will ignite a less combustible material and Fuel is a less combustible material that's burns slowly and steadily once ignited. So kindling is uh, very small sticks and scraps of wood and fueled is the larger logs, uh, larger sized um, downed boughs, and so on that you might use. Um, so there's three sizes of fire material. The bottom size is the largest, the middle size that goes in between uh, the top and the bottom is a uh, a smaller sized uh, kindling, um, it's, uh, no larger than your small finger in diameter. Uh, the combustible material is anything uh, larger than your wrist, and tinder is the Dry material that ignites ignites with little heat. So moss is good tender. Dry leaves are good tender. Uh, If you have plastic with you, that can sometimes work as tender. Uh, Paper can work as tender. Um, You can use uh, um, bracken is good tender. That sort of thing. Dry, uh, very fine material. And when I say material, I mean woodland material. Uh, in a desert, um, you often don't have any material to burn. Uh, you might have stuff with you. Uh, if you have some small amount of bracken, you can build an underground uh, fire pit, and it will heat the ground up, and you can put rocks in it, and the rocks will heat, and then you can maintain those rocks uh, through about half the night. Um in a jungle environment everything's wet. It's difficult to build a fire. You don't have any dry uh burning material. So you don't have tinder, you don't have dry tinder, you don't have dry kindling, and you don't have dry fuel. All of your stuff is soaked through. Uh and your your matches or whatever you're using to light uh if you've got um flint and stone This might, uh, strike a spark, but due to the heavy condensation and, um, uh, air heaviness, it's difficult to get a fire even started, and then you have, uh, you don't have very much to burn. So, uh, fortunately, the temperature is usually excessively high, and you don't need a fire that much. Um... In the desert you do need a fire at night and often you just have to do without one and uh, in the Arctic um, or in high mountain zone with snow and ice uh, of course the snow prevents uh, dry kindling and dry fuel and uh, and and dry tinder is not available as uh, usually people rely on um, you know, ground uh, ground scraps, dry leaves, and so on for tender, and none of that's available. It's, it's covered with snow. So building a fire in an emergency situation is often a lot more difficult than this sounds like. Uh, there's several methods for laying a fire, each of which is ha- has its advantages. Uh, the situation uh, would determine which fire you would want to use, which fire type. Uh, there's the teepee fire. To make this fire, uh, you arrange the tender and a few sticks of kindling in the shape of a teepee or a cone, and you light the center. And as the teepee burns, the outside logs fall inward to feed the fire, and it burns well even with wet wood. Uh, there's the lean-to fire. Uh, to lay this fire, you push a, a green stick into the ground at a 30 degree angle, and then point the end of the stick in the direction of the wind. And you place some tender deep underneath the lean-to stick and uh, lean pieces of kindling against the lean-to stick and light the tender. And as the kindling catches fire from the tender, you add more kindling. Uh, the lean-to fire is for when there's a heavy wind uh, and they, they say um, a green stick. But what you want to get is uh, some piece of green wood that's wide enough to produce a wind break. And you want to you want to protect the fire from the open wind, but at the same time, you want to f- funnel the w- available air and wind um, caused by the windbreak into the fire to to uh, to aid its burning. Uh, the TP fire is uh, is for when it's uh, it's calm, it's nice out. You don't have a lot of wind, you don't have a lot of rain, you don't have a lot of elements going on. Uh, and it's um, it's a long burning fire. Uh, it's the best kind to use at night, uh, so that you can sleep. It kind of takes care of itself. It tends itself during the night, and you don't have to get up, you know, five or six times in the middle of the night to reset your fire and uh, and add your um, fuel, additional fuel to it. Uh, there's a cross ditch fire. Uh, This method is um, This method is a little bit more elaborate Uh, You want to scratch a cross about 30 centimeters in size in the ground, so that's like an X Uh, and then dig the cross 7.5 centimeters deep uh, with a piece of stick or a piece of stone put a large wad of tinder in the middle of the cross and then build a kindling pyramid above the tender, and uh, the shallow ditch allows the air to sweep under the tender to provide a draft, um, and this can help if you're in an area where it's difficult to get a fire started. Uh, it kind of um, it creates a uh, um, an underground uh, wind or underground air tunnel. Uh, from four sides that helps to feed the fire underneath. Uh, Sometimes if you're at um, a sea level or very high altitude, it can be difficult to keep a fire going because of the oxygen. Uh, Either the oxygen is real stagnant and there's not a lot of air moving, or uh, it's very high altitude and there's a low oxygen level. This helps to maximize your oxygen of feed into your fire base. And then a pyramid fire to lay this fire, you place two small logs or branches uh, parallel on the ground and then place a solid layer of smaller logs of small logs across the parallel logs. and then you add three or four more layers of logs or branches so that you build sort of a, a layered platform. Each layer smaller and at a right angle to the layer beneath it. And then you make a starter fire on top of the pyramid. And as the starter fire burns, it ignites the logs below it. And this gives you a fire that burns downward that requires uh, no attending during the night. Uh, It does burn for quite some time. So if you build your fire uh, at sunset the night before and you use this method, you will still have a fire burning fairly strongly into the morning hours. If you were planning on leaving it daylight, first light, uh, you would have to break this fire up. And uh you want to be careful not to light a forest fire or of more concern, uh, a field fire behind you that's chasing you through your uh area of travel. So you wanna try to come up with um a layer of um logs and branches that will last as long as you want it to last and not a lot longer so that you're not stuck trying to break your fire up for two hours in the morning so the kinds of tender that you can use I went through some of these already but uh, you can use birch bark and a shredded inner bark from a cedar chestnut round elm or really any tree uh, you tear the bark off the outside if you can break it off the outside, and, and the uh, thin, uh, brown, papery stuff on the inside of the bark, that is uh, inner bark, and that's always good tender from pretty much any tree. Uh, fine wood shavings, if you can find those or make them. Dead grass, ferns, moss, fungi or fungi. Uh, straw, sawdust, very fine pitchwood scrapings. Uh, Dead evergreen needles. Punk, which is the completely rotted portions of dead logs or trees. Uh, You kick the log open and you'll find sort of a um, dark brown, uh, porous, uh, sort of um, separated, uh, grainy interior that's soft and crumbly. You can use that. That's punk evergreen tree knots, uh, burnt down like fine feathers from nests or the nest itself, Uh, down seed heads, milkweed, dry cattails, bulrush or thistle, Uh, fine dried vegetable fibers, spongy threads of dead puffball, dead palm leaves, uh, skin-like membrane lining bamboo. Uh, You break the bamboo open uh, in half, and you can scrape the inside of the bamboo and just like a tree trunk or just like the uh, shredded inner bark from a from a tree uh, it has a it has a um, skin-like membrane that lines the inside of it you scrape that off and use it. Lint from your pocket or the seams of your clothes. Uh, Charred cloth which was I described previously. You can use waxed paper that burns for quite some time uh, outer bamboo shavings. Uh, bamboo is great. It's uh, it's uh, much relied upon in um, in the southeast a, uh, of Asia. Uh, it does just about everything um, and burning it burns for a long time. Uh, Gunpowder, cotton, and lint. And uh, if you don't have any of those things, you can use your hair. Uh, Small twigs for kindling. Uh, Kindling is uh, the intermediate, the medium-sized fuel for your fire. Uh, You have small twigs, small strips of wood, split wood or heavy cardboard, uh, pieces of wood removed from the inside of larger pieces, and wood that's been doused with highly flammable material such as gasoline, oil, or wax. Uh, kindling can be kind of hard to find uh, in, in almost all of the uh, extreme survival situations. Obviously, uh, the reason it's an extreme survival situation is because it doesn't have a lot of kindling available. So you have to kind of try to um, think about what you have. Do you have cardboard uh, pieces of uh, your MRE bag? Uh, You want to be careful about using that because sometimes it's your only container. Uh, You know, pieces of toilet paper if you have that. Uh, Pieces of your uniform if that works. Uh, Fuel. This is a larger, longer burning. So you want dry standing wood and dry dead branches. Uh, The dried inside heart of a fallen tree trunk or large branches. Green wood that's finely split dry grass twisted into bunches peat dry enough to burn this might be found at the bottom or it might be found at the top of uh, undercut banks uh... you have to cut that out of the ground dried animal dung um... almost any animal dung will do it burns real smoky though and uh... it can be hazardous to your eyes and nose animal fats uh... these burn low and slow and uh, they do also consume oxygen in the room so even though it seems like a candle that you can safely leave in a closed area it's not you have to have some sort of ventilation coal and oil shale or oil lying on the surface Uh, if you happen to encounter those in your survival situation which is not usually likely but if you're in a downed aircraft, you might be—you uh, might have fuel. And uh, if you are in a uh, some kind of a shipwreck or a boat capsizing, you might have fuel there. And uh, if you uh, become stranded in your automobile, you have or vehicle, you have fuel there. Uh, how to light a fire is uh, always up for debate. Uh, you can light your fire from the windward, the upwind side. Make sure to lay your tinder, kindling and fuel so that your fire burns as long as you need it. Uh, igniters provide the initial heat required to start the tender burning and they fall into two categories. There's modern methods and primitive methods. Uh, modern methods of igniters uh, use modern devices Uh, items that we would normally think of to start a fire so fire sticks and matches and we have matches and convex lenses and metal matches and so on. Uh, Modern igniters uh, are less reliable. Uh, They do not always work in the cold or in the rain or in the heat or in high humidity. Uh, Matches make sure the matches are waterproof and store them in a waterproof container along with a dependable striker pad but um, if it's high humidity, matches are difficult to light and will dud out. Uh, if it's cold, it can be difficult to get a match to light and burn, especially if you're in a high mountain Arctic area uh, where there's low oxygen and high cold and high wind and, high, and uh, it's wet. Um, so they're not, they're not as reliable as one would like. A convex lens. You can use this on bright sunny days. Uh, you can even use it on overcast days, it just takes a lot longer uh, if, it's not a, if it's not a heavy overcast, if it's a light overcast day. Uh, you can still um, determine where the sun is and use, uh, use it from that direction. Uh, just take You have to wait a lot longer. And uh, you need something that's fairly flammable. Other the lens can come from binoculars, a camera, telescope, a telescopic lens sights or magnifying glasses um, you can use your glasses lens uh, you can use uh, any kind of mirror device that you have for signaling you angle the lens to concentrate the Sun's rays on the tender and then hold the lens over the same spot until the tender begins to smolder and blow or fan the tender into a flame and then apply it to your um, to your fire lay a metal match uh, is another one that you can use you can place a flat dry leaf under your tender with a portion exposed and then place the tip of the metal match on the dry leaf uh, holding the metal match in one hand and a knife in the other and then scrape your knife across the metal match to produce sparks The sparks will hit the tender when the tender starts to smolder proceed uh... as though you would with a regular um, tender to your fire lay. Battery. uh, You use a battery to generate a spark. Uh, The use of the method depends on the type of battery that's available. If you're in a downed aircraft, if you're in a a capsized boat, um, if you have a vehicle available, you can attach a wire to each terminal and touch the ends of the bare wire together next to the tender so the sparks ignite it. Uh, you can use gunpowder. You might have ammunition with your equipment. Uh, you would carefully extract the bullet from the case, the shell casing and then use the gunpowder as a tender. Uh, spark lights the gunpowder. You have to be very careful, obviously, when extracting the bullet from the case. Um, then we have our primitive methods. Uh, the primitive igniters are those, uh, you know, that Don't rely on modern means and methods. So flint and steel is one of the oldest ones. Uh, This uses uh, flint, which is a type of stone. You can find this yourself uh, if you look around, or you can buy it nowadays. And uh, steel, uh, you can use any piece of steel. Uh, Usually you have to find something that works together with your flint, the shape of your flint, so that you uh, can get a spark out of it. And you have to replace both your flint and your steel fairly regularly. Uh, The direct spark method is the easiest of the primitive methods to use, and the flint and steel method is the most reliable of the direct spark method. This is uh, similar to your metal match. You strike a flint or other hard sharp edge rock edge with a piece of carbon steel. Stainless steel does not produce a good spark, so you want a a piece of um, uh, non-stainless steel. If you can, you kind of have to get this together ahead of time. Um, most military equipment now uses stainless steel to prevent uh, deterioration of the item uh, in in elements. So it's difficult to find uh, equipment amongst your pieces of equipment that have. Non-stainless steel. And it's a good idea to get something together beforehand. Uh, this method requires a loose-jointed wrist and some practice. And when the spark is caught, the tinder, uh, then you have to blow on it to fan it into a flame. This spark uh, spreads into a um, a low. Um, pre-flame, and then bursts into flames. Uh, You can use a fire plow. Uh, The fire plow is a friction method of ignition. Uh, This is where you rub rub a hardwood shaft uh, of wood against a softer wood base. And to use this method, you cut a straight groove in the base piece of base wood, which looks kind of like, uh, if you can get something that looks like the... um, the, uh, Um, It should be uh, a long piece that's fairly flat on top. You can use the inside of a piece of a long piece of bark, or if you can cut uh, a piece of branch in half, so you have an inside with a soft intersection uh, lengthwise. Uh, You cut a straight groove in the base, and then you plow the blunt tip of the shaft up and down in the groove. And the plowing action of the shaft pushes out a small amount of uh, the the action pushes out a small amount of uh, particles of wood fiber, and uh, and then as you apply more pressure on each stroke, the friction uh, increases uh, through the trough and eventually lights those wood particles. That's your your tinder, and then uh, the base of the wood. Uh, becomes your your fuel source. You have to quickly move to put an intermediate size of you know a slightly larger size of tinder, and uh, and build your fire up. So you have to have all of that available. Once you get the spark started, and you get a small flame going, then you have to coax it into a larger fire. Uh, the bow and drill. The technique of starting a fire with a bow and a drill is a simple but you have to exert a lot of effort over a long period of time and you have to be persistent to produce a fire. Uh, you have to be in a comfortable position because you're going to be sitting there for a while and you need a socket that's a, a easily grasped stone or piece of hardwood or bone with a slight depression on one side uh, to use it to hold the drill in place and to apply the downward pressure Then you need the drill uh, the drill should be a straight, seasoned hardwood stick about two centimeters in diameter and 25 centimeters long, and the top end is round and the the low end is blunt to produce more friction, and then a fire board, uh, and the size of this is up to uh, the fire builder. A seasoned softwood softwood board about 2.5 centimeters thick and 10 centimeters wide is preferable. Um, The softer the wood, the more likely you're going to be able to get it to start because you can can, uh, uh, maximize your friction. A hard wood takes a lot longer uh, to build up the friction level needed to ignite your tender. You cut a depression about 2 centimeters from the edge on one side of the board. and On the underside, you make a V-shape cut from the edge of the board to the depression. And then the bow is a a resilient green stick about 2.5 centimeters in diameter and a string. Uh, Type of wood isn't really important. The bow string can be any type of cordage. Uh, You tie the bow string from one end of the bow to the other without any slack. And uh, then to use the bow in the drill, first you prepare the fire lay so that it's ready because as soon as that spark goes, you're going to have to try to build the fire off of it uh, before it goes out. Uh, then you place a bundle of tender under the V-shaped cut in the fireboard and place one foot on the fireboard. Loop the bowstring over the drill. So you wanna you wanna wrap the bowstring around the wood drill to create a um to create a sort of uh like a washing machine um motion when you roll it so that it rolls back and forth across the length of the string of the bow and you're using that to um, revolve the stick the revolve your um, your drill you place the drill and the pre-cut depression on the fireboard and then place the socket held in one hand on top of the drill that's to hold it in place and it can just be a piece of stone that's got kind of a cup in it. Uh, You hold the drill in position against the um, fireboard, and then you press down on the drill and saw the bow back and forth to twirl the drill. Uh, Once you've established a smooth motion, you just apply more and more downward pressure and work the bow faster. Uh, The action grinds uh, hot black powder into the tinder and causes a spark to catch and then you blow on the tinder until it ignites. Uh, This is an exhaustive method, and it requires a lot of practice to ensure success on it. Uh, Some hints for maximizing your fire building. Use non-aromic seasoned hardwood for fuel if possible. Uh, You want to collect kindling and tinder along the trail as as you're moving through the day. You can get those together, and then you have them at night instead of trying to find them in the evening when you're trying to build camp. Uh, you can add insect repellent to the tender to help ignite it uh, and keep it burning longer. You can keep the firewood dry. Uh, you want to dry, damp firewood near the fire. You want to bank the fire to keep the coals alive overnight. And carry light punk, lightweight punk, when possible. You can get this out of uh, out of rotted logs, and it's easy to come across during the day. And uh, not so easy to find in the afternoon or evening when you're trying to set up camp. If you collect it early and carry it with you, it's, uh, it saves you time. Be sure the fire is out before leaving your camp. And uh, do not select wood lying on the ground. It may appear to be dry, but generally doesn't provide enough friction. So this is all good advice, but of course when you're out trying to build a fire, uh, the wood that you have is on the ground. You don't have a lot of access to wood off of the ground a lot of times. Uh, oftentimes you don't have any tools or any way to um, really build a fire. You're, you're reliant on very primitive methods and very uh, primitive um, attempts to build and maintain your fire. So... That's it for fire building. So there's a good acronym to remember uh, when you're out by yourself and you are in a survival situation or an extreme situation. Uh, the word survival is an acronym that can be used to remember uh, the important things that you need to do to uh, make it through. S, uh for size up the situation, you want to size up your surroundings, your physical condition, and your equipment. Uh, how fast are you able to move? What kind of surroundings are you in? Is it open desert? Is it thick jungle? Is it uh, is it deep snow? Uh, is it um, steep mountainside? Uh, you in survival, you want to use all of your senses. And undue haste makes waste. So you wanna you wanna keep moving at a regular rate of speed, not go too fast, don't go too slow. You want to use all your senses and pay attention to what's going on around you. Uh R and survival. Remember where you are. So it you can things can get very hazy. You're you're low on water, you haven't eaten, you haven't slept, you've been traveling, uh, on foot through, you know, difficult circumstances. Uh, try to pay attention to where you are and remember what you're doing. So remember that you have to build a fire at the end of the day and try to pick up some tinder and kindling. Uh, remember that you need water and you see that there's a possibility to make a slight detour to pick up some water. Be sure to make a slight detour to pick up some water. Um, V and survive. Vanquish fear and panic. So don't let fear and panic uh, drive you. Um, You do have to kind of keep your fear and panic uh, as a motivator that motivates you. Uh, Fear motivates you to keep moving uh you don't want to build a camp and then you know set up for a few weeks and uh panic uh keeps you alert about paying attention to what you need to keep track of and things that you need to get together at the beginning of your day for the end of your day and at the end of your day for the beginning of your day uh the eye and survival improvise you want to improvise as best you can uh this is always easier said than done Uh, There's some people that are really good at improvising things. They have a lot of building and and, uh, construction capability. And there's some people that aren't very good at it at all. Uh, Some people like to just uh, use what's around them or bypass it. Uh, The V, the second V in survival, value living. So, uh, you know, keep... The value of staying alive in mind or keep it uppermost and don't let uh, depression and um, discomfort outweigh uh, the value of staying alive. Uh, a, and survival, act like the natives. Um, do the best you can to uh, do what a native would do. Uh, think, what would they do in this circumstance? It does help. Uh, a lot of times things, you've, things that you've seen on TV or in the movies or you've read in books or you've heard people talking about or you've seen other people do or or you've heard uh, of those things that can help you in uh, dire circumstances. And the final L, live by your wits uh, and learn basic skills. So I'm going to go up through this in a little bit more detail. Um. If you're in a combat situation and you find a place where you can conceal yourself from the enemy, uh, remember that security takes priority. So, use your senses of hearing and smell and sight to get a feel for the battlefield. What is the enemy doing? Are they advancing? Are they holding in place? Are they retreating? Uh, are they? Are they? Uh, is there a battlefront? Where are you in relation to the battlefront? Uh, you'll have to consider what's developing on the battlefield when you make your survival plan. Uh, you want to size up your surroundings. So you want to determine the pattern of the area and get a feel for what's going on around you. Uh, every environment, whether it's a forest environment, jungle environment, or desert, has a rhythm or a pattern to it. Uh, that's con- that's uh, created by the animals. Uh, it's created by uh, the... the um, The war activities that are taking place in that area, it's it's created by the weather. This rhythm or pattern includes animal and bird noises and movements and insect sounds. And it also includes enemy traffic and civilian movements. Uh, You want to size up your physical condition. So the pressure of the battle you were in or the trauma of being in a survival situation may have caused you to overlook wounds that you have. So you want to check your wounds, give yourself first aid. Uh, you You have to be capable of moving to move. So take care to prevent further bodily harm. Uh, For instance, in any climate, you want to drink plenty of water to prevent dehydration. That's one of the main uh, debilitating factors of uh, being in a survival situation. And if you're in a cold or wet climate, you want to put on additional clothing to prevent hypothermia if you have that clothing. And if you don't, you want to carefully monitor your your physical um, heat output and Uh, heat maintenance so that you know when you need to stop and build a fire and warm up if you can do that. You want to size up your equipment perhaps in the heat of battle you lost or damaged some of your equipment so you want to check and see what equipment you have and what condition it's in and and you want to decide what you're gonna what you're gonna take with you and what you're gonna leave because you move faster with less things on you with less equipment and material on you so you want to take only what you think you're gonna need and uh, sometimes that's difficult to decide what what you're going to need and, and to leave behind those things that you don't need. Uh, they're only going to slow you up. They're going to make it more difficult for you to move around in uh, constrained circumstances, and it's going to make it uh, more possible for you to injure yourself. So... Once you've sized up your situation, your surroundings, your physical condition, and your equipment, you're ready to make a survival plan. And then you want to keep in mind your basic physical needs, water, food, and heat and shelter. Uh, you want to use all of your senses. That's the you in survival. Uh, undue haste makes waste. You make a wrong turn or a wrong move and uh, react quickly without thinking or planning. And it can uh, it can result in uh, a bad decision. It can result in your capture, or it can result in uh, doing something that result that uh, uh, brings about your death. So don't move just for the sake of taking action. You want to consider all aspects of your situation and size up your situation before you make a decision and move. If you act in haste, you might forget or lose some of your equipment. And sometimes your equipment is uh, very valuable and sometimes it's just uh, it's uh, it's a weight on your back. In your haste, you may also become disoriented so that you don't know which way to go. So you want to plan your moves carefully and be ready to move out quickly without endangering yourself if there's an enemy near. You want to use all your senses to evaluate the situation, note sounds and smells, and be sensitive to temperature changes and be observant. And these things all... Uh, these things all work in, in all circumstances, so not just uh, when you're facing an enemy or trying to determine where the enemy is. Uh, if you're going to notice that birds are flying low and close to the ground or they're perching on certain trees that might have water in them, or you're noticing that insects, bees, and so on are headed towards water, you have to pay attention. You have to see those things around you as you're moving through a very challenging terrain, whatever your terrain is. Uh, The R in survival. Remember where you are. You want to spot your location on your map and relate it to the surrounding terrain if you have a map. Otherwise, you want to locate yourself uh, using the rising sun and setting sun. And then using uh, what you know of um, star position to determine where you are and what direction you're traveling in. You want to think carefully about where the battlefront was or... Where your plane last was or in what direction you were traveling and try to maintain that same direction you want to try to set a path that uh, Takes you out of uh, the area of concern uh, This is a basic principle that you must always follow uh, to spot your location on a map and relate it to the surrounding terrain or spot your Area uh, spot your location uh, according to um, the movement of the sun across the sky from dawn to to sunset, and uh, the the movement of the stars or the position of the stars uh, to give an idea of of where you are and where you're going to. Otherwise, you just end up walking around in circles. Uh, if there are other persons with you, uh, you want to make sure that they also know their location. You want to know who in your group, uh, vehicle, or aircraft has a map or a compass. Uh, If the person that uh, has the map and compass is killed, you'll have to get that from them. So pay close attention to where you are and what you're doing, and do not rely on others in the group to keep track of the route. Uh, This is kind of more for the thought of uh, you're in a patrol, and uh, you're ambushed, and three of you are left alive, and you're you're behind enemy lines now. The enemy's moved across you and they're behind you and you cannot easily get back to your unit. You have to go out and around or you have to go back through uh, an enemy territory that's now located behind you. And so now you have three people. Uh, you originally had seven people on your patrol. Who had the map and compass? Who had the radio? Uh, you want to try to get those items off of those people Uh, Before you leave the area, um, if they haven't already been taken off of them, Uh, you want to try to put together uh, what you can from your circumstances. Uh, You do not rely on others in the group to keep track of the route. You always keep track of the route yourself. And then, uh, you know, everybody, everybody communicates about what they think the route is. And uh, if you think that somebody's making a decision for the group that you don't think is right and you want to stay on the route that you're on, then uh, sometimes that decision comes up and you have to make that decision for yourself. Uh, You want to constantly orient yourself to uh, your direction of travel. So uh, you're traveling east, you want to constantly orient yourself to the rising sun and to an eastward eastward movement of travel uh, based on the stars. You always want to try to determine as a minimum how your location relates to the location of enemy units and controlled areas, the location of friendly units and controlled areas, uh, the location of local water sources. And this is especially important in the desert. There's very few water sources there. Uh, A lot of times you can rely on, um, uh, irrigation, canals, and, uh, local watering holes. Um, I say a lot of times, but you know, if you're on a patrol, you're usually patrolling through, uh, an, uh, um, uh, inhabited inhabited area. And, uh, there's fields and, and some water resources there that you can use. Uh, those, you have to pay attention to areas that will provide good cover and concealment. Uh, this, this allows you to make intelligent decisions when you're in a survival and evasion situation. Uh, The V for vanquish, fear, and panic. Uh, The greatest enemies in a combat survival and evasion situation are fear and panic. Um, If you allow fear and panic to control you, they destroy the ability to make an intelligent decision. Uh, um, They cause you to react to feelings and imagination rather than to your actual situation. And they drain your energy and cause other negative emotions. So previous um, survival and evasion training and self-confidence helps you to vanquish fear and panic. But if you don't have those, um, you just have to focus very carefully on what you're doing and uh, try to um, reduce the rising feelings of fear and panic when they, when they come up and uh, focus on practical things that you need to take care of, and that helps to calm you down and focus you on things that uh, are directly in your immediate area of concern. The I in survival is uh, improvise. Uh, In the United States, uh, there are items available for needs. Uh, Many of the items are cheap to replace when they're damaged and, and they're easy to get uh we can easily replace them and it becomes unnecessary for people to learn how to improvise so the inexperience in improvisation is a, or improvisation isn't an, it's an enemy in a survival situation and so you need to learn how to improvise and you don't have to be you know you don't have to be a rambo improvising you you just have to be um you just have to pay attention to things that you can use uh, in an unusual way. Uh, you know normally you wouldn't use a rock to scrape out um, to, to, you know, to dig a hole in the ground. Uh, so you, you have to look for a kind of rock that works for digging out a hole in the ground. This is not as easy as it sounds. It is not that easy to find a, a, a rock that you can use to dig with. Um, or a stick and a rock that you can use to dig with. Or to dig a hole in the ground using nothing but the local items which are rocks and sticks so uh learn to improvise and to do that you um you kind of have to do that all the time you just sort of pay attention uh to things um that you can make better you can uh you can do this without getting that you can You can put this together without getting those. Um, You take a tool that's designed for a specific purpose, and then you see how many other uses you can make of it. So you have an entrenching tool. You use it, obviously, you can use it to dig with. What else can you use an entrenching tool for? And try to come up with a list of things. Uh, You know, you have a tarp, a plastic tarp. What uh, what can you use a plastic tarp for? What many things can you use a plastic tarp for? Invaluable piece of equipment is a plastic tarp. I'll learn to use natural objects around you for different needs. Uh, if using a rock for a hammer, uh, no matter how complete a survival kit you have with you, uh, you run out or items wear out after a while and you're left using a rock for a hammer. So your imagination can take over when your your working kit wears out. Uh, the second V in survival, value living. So everyone's born uh, with the, the will to live, uh, but uh, most people become complacent about life, and uh, especially in the United States, uh, used to the soft life and become creatures of comfort. And we dislike the inconveniences and discomforts uh, of hard living, so what happens when people are faced with a survival situation, with the stresses and inconveniences and discomforts, and the fear and panic, and and uh, you know the swirling uh, uh, lack of certainty? Uh, that's when the will to live, that's placing a high value on living, is vital. Uh, the experience and knowledge one gains through life and uh, the army training or Air Force training or Marine training or Navy training all have a bearing on your will to live. So stubbornness and refusal to give in to problems and obstacles that face you give you uh, the mental and physical strength to endure. And that's what you have to do is just endure hardship until you reach the end of it. Uh, A, to act like the natives. Uh, The natives and animals of region have adapted to their environment. And uh, they go about their daily routine, when and what they eat and where they go and get their food. And uh, these actions are important when you're trying to avoid capture. Uh, You want to pay attention to animals and imitate and mimic them and also native people. Uh, They often know best about their environment and you can learn from them.